0: because you'll forget later and because it's the best way to help others who may be in search of career advice to find this free resource. So press pause if you haven't done it and do it right now. I'll wait. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Dear Java junkies, welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about the field of functional and integrative medicine, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is is a family practice physician with an expertise in functional medicine as well as a variety of chronic diseases. But before I introduce you to Dr. Ebony Cornish, I want to make sure that you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out bright and early on Monday mornings, and it's got career advice, insights, and inspiration to help you learn More all about different careers while leveling up your professional and personal life. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at Time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my functional almond milk frappuccino lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Dr. Ebony Cornish, a family practice physician at the Amen Clinics, where she specializes in infectious diseases. Diseases and functional medicine, as well as the treatment of Lyme disease, environmental toxicity, methylation disorders, among other chronic conditions. Dr. Cornish completed her family medicine residency at Georgetown University. And later, as a Howard Hughes Medical Fellow, she conducted research at the National Human Genome Research Institute of NIH, where she was an apprentice in the laboratory of Dr. Francis Collins, who is also the current director of NIH and the leader of the Human Genome Project. Dr. Cornish currently serves as a board member of the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society Educational Foundation. She's also a member of the American College for Advancement in Medicine. The acronym is ACAM and the Institute of Functional Medicine, IFM. Dr. Cornish, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go?
1: I am super caffeinated right now and ready to go.
0: Awesome. And my friends, Dr. Cornish is saying this. It's after six on a Friday evening and she is still ready to go. How awesome is she? And I want to let you know this, what I'm about to share with you is not coming from a press release or from the Amen Clinic website. I know this firsthand. How awesome Dr. Cornish is because, drum roll please. She is also my doctor who's been (laughs) treating me for the last, gosh, six or seven months, helping me to heal from a reactivated Lyme disease, which I didn't even know could be reactivated until Dr. Cornish told me about this. And okra toxins. I'm guessing you have no idea what okra toxins is. We're going to get into that. Inflammation. I mean, I I just I've been a mess, a mess. And we are going to dig into it in a few minutes just because for most most all physicians, because of patient confidentiality, she wouldn't be able to go into the kind of minutia that she would if I weren't giving her my permission. So before we get into all of that, Dr. Cornish, and before I've totally turned off my listeners saying, why would we want to hear about all the stuff going on with you, Andrea? But trust me, it's going to be interesting. Before we get into all that, Could you please explain to our young listeners what functional medicine is and how it works?
1: All right. Well, thank you for that intro. Functional medicine is really understanding the root cause of disease. And what that means is it's more preventative. You ask yourself, well, why does this happen to a person? Not just what the diagnosis is. Well, why did that develop? So you look at many different systems that can be environmental toxicity, that can be infections, that can be, you know, things like your hormones, and taking a step further, going all the way back to birth, because there are a lot of conditions of which people are predisposed to based on their birth history and what could have happened to them in utero in the womb. So it's kind of like a detective. You put the pieces together when you look at a person and you try to understand that missing kind of root cause. And that's how you really get a patient whole: is listening to them and putting all those puzzle pieces together to find out why a person might be suffering from any type of symptoms or condition.
0: I love that you said that you're kind of like a detective because as you were talking, and in fact, as I was preparing for this interview, I thought a functional physician is really like a Sherlock Holmes. You're like out there looking for the clues to try to solve the mystery.
1: That is absolutely right. And the beautiful thing I find working at Amy Clinic, because at first I started at my private practice, is that they look at the brain. They look at what the brain looks like. And then I come in, I say, well, why does the brain look like that? Well, why does a person feel that way? And you really won't know until you look and until you listen. And so it is always, every day I'm Sherlock Holmes. I have my microscope out. I have my big hat. I have, you know, I don't smoke on a pipe, so that's not a part. But, you know, it's, it, it's so rewarding when you can really have a positive impact in someone's life by just taking the time out to determine why they're presenting. With certain symptoms. It's it's great. So could you take us into a typical
0: day for you, Dr. Cornish? What does being a family practice physician look like during COVID? We're doing this interview right now. It's getting, we're, I guess, in the middle of February. What is it like and how do you operate with regards to diagnosing your patients and then treating them?
1: Well, As you know, Andre, I ask ask a ton of questions. So prior to any visit that I have with a patient, they're going to give me a whole checklist of all their different systems from if they're sleeping, if their gut is working, if they're having problems with body parts, they're going to check all of that for me. And they're going to also give me a lifestyle history if they're eating right, if they're drinking, you know, so just so I get to know them. So I read that first before I see a patient. And then if they've had brain imaging, I'll look at their brain scan to determine, so I think this might be something else going on? Is this more of an inflammatory kind of patient with another root cause? And it gets me centered. You know, I kind of have the paperwork ahead of time. But you know what, it always changes once I sit down with the patient and they add more to their story. But my focus is to be as prepared as possible because you want a list of things to think about when you're in a field as wide and diverse as functional medicine, because so many different systems can be affected. So you want to have kind of like a a differential, what I call a differential diagnosis and a priority list of what could be troubling this patient. So the majority of my morning is in the prep work. And then by the time I've seen my patient, they told me a lot about what's going on. I'd have a lot of their history. And then I use that story and that report because we spent about an hour, sometimes even an hour and a half just talking to one another. I put more pieces on that puzzle, right? So I start adding more to this puzzle. And I'm still looking sometimes for that middle piece, that missing piece that could tie it all together. So that might be when I say, you know what, let's do further testing. Let's maybe look at is the root cause infectious? Is it hormonal? Is it environmental? Because I want to kind of tie it all together, because that's how you get people better understanding all those different layers, what they tell you, what you add into that differential from what you're getting from their documentation, and then from what you decide to test them and evaluate them for to fill in that missing piece.
0: How is the way that you are going about this, this detective work different from the way that most doctors who are not functional practitioners
1: evaluate
0: and treat their patients?
1: And when I first started, because I did do family practice for quite some time before transitioning to integrative medicine, you know, I just didn't have enough time to do that detective work. It was kind of like that 15 minute visit. This is your chief complaint here's X to treat that chief complaint. And I really get get to dig deeper. And that's why I love my job because I can start from when a patient I ask them, when did you last feel well? What's changed between our visits? And I get that time to interact and really listen to that person, which is what I think leads to better results. So, you know, in traditional, when I was just in family practice, like we like to call allopathic traditional medicine. It was more just the treatment. All right. This is the evidence based treatment for X condition. See you in six months and let's follow up again. Versus functional medicine where it's like, oh wow, this person has X symptoms. Well, why do they have that? Well, let's connect it with these dots and then really taking the time to sift through the weeds and get that real true reason behind why. And I always tell my patients, I look at the why. Before I used to look at the what what the condition is. Now I ask myself, well, why do they have that condition? And and that's, I love my job. That's one of the things I do.
0: Well, I'm so glad you love your job because if you weren't there, I would still be suffering. So, so here you go. Here is the way I was presenting to Dr. Cornish seven months ago. I had a chronic cough. I, I was presenting with this chronic cough and that was one of the biggest symptoms. And I'd had this cough for more than two years. And I had gone to see someone who was considered to be one of the top pulmonologists in the country who evaluated me, x-rayed my lungs, did all the asthma testing and said, your lungs are clear. You do not have asthma. You do not have anything going on in your lungs that I can see, I think. He didn't say it's psychosomatic, but he said, here's a medication you can take, Andrea, to suppress the cough. You you have? Because I think it may be a tick. That's another way of saying it's in your head. Dr. Cornish did not have that approach. What was it that you did with regards to putting together, starting to connect some of those dots?
1: I looked at your history and your exposures. I mean, we had long discussions about travel history, your diet, foods that might make you susceptible to certain conditions. We talked about you know, your birth history and and even infections. You know, had you been living in certain environments where things like tick-borne disease may be an issue. So I did a kind of a checklist of, okay, there's a cough, but why? What are some of the most common things that cause cough? So I talked about, okay, mold. Anytime you have mold exposure or biotoxin illness, that can lead to a little reactive airway. And I said, okay. Is it allergy related? Is it something called mast cell activation syndrome? So let me rule that out. Let's look at if it's a histamine problem where her body's just producing histamine at such a high rate that it's causing her to have this inflammatory response. Then I said, well, toxins. There are certain other toxins that might be dietary or lifestyle related that can also cause reactive airway conditions. And then I took the last step. I said, all right, what are some of the infections that can contribute to pulmonary symptoms that may not traditionally be screened for, that may be things that what we call reactivate, meaning had years ago thought they were laying in the dust and then boom, they pop up again. And then the stress level, that cortisol, that stress response, because what I know that happens so often with my patients is that they were having, living, great, healthy, and then a stressor, may that have been an emotional stressor, a physical stressor, like an other, another condition or illness, may that have been changes in lifestyle or sleep or patterns. Or and then the boom.
0: coronavirus.
1: Or even the coronavirus, and then boom, things flare up again. And that's really the nature of chronic illness, Try to understand the triggers. So I couldn't just say, oh, yeah. This is to treat your symptom. I need to know, well, what's the trigger for that? And go down a really evidence-based differential diagnosis of things that might cause that symptom. So Dr. Cornish ordered a whole
0: bunch of lab work and found through that lab work that I have something called an okra toxin in my body, which is a kind of a mold. Is that right?
1: Yes, it is. It's kind of a, a form of black mold all right and what it causes it causes numerous things so the research shows that black mold can cause chronic fatigue black mold like okra toxin can cause inflammation in the central nervous system because you have to think about just basic anatomy if you inhale something from a water damaged building it has the ability to travel through your sinuses and anything that travels through your sinuses can eventually go to the brain and that's a very very important organ and responsible for so many things. So that's why we know mold toxicity is also responsible for hormone imbalances and chronic fatigue syndrome. And it also has been shown to compromise your immune system. But get this, the one thing that a lot of my patients, the female patients, because I treat a lot of women, they say, I can't lose weight, Dr. Cornish. I exercise, I eat rocks and paper, and I'm still unable to lose a pound. And a lot of my patients with biotoxin illness report that because mold toxicity can suppress that hormone that allows for your weight to respond to exercise and diet. So it's just amazing the things you learn just from environmental toxicity.
0: And then Dr. Cornish also found out through the lab work that she ordered that my Lyme disease, which which I first got five years ago and had taken five weeks of a super strong antibiotic and was told, you know, the Lyme disease is gone, that in fact could be reactivated and had been reactivated.
1: So what what caused that? That, you know, one thing about tick-borne diseases, when we say Lyme disease, that's kind of like an umbrella term for numerous other vector-borne illnesses. And I just really want the listeners to be aware of that. You think, oh yeah, I have Lyme disease, I have a bullseye rash, two weeks work of antibiotic, and then I'm good to go. But what we found in research, which is what made me look at this test for you, is that Borrelia bridovri, which is the deer tick, has the ability to create kind of a protective coat around it. So it lays dormant, it hides out in the body. And, you know, for the listeners, something like a virus, but not where I can lay dormant and flare up again. But it's a bacteria that does that. And what causes the symptoms to flare? And that can be emotional, as I stated earlier, physical, social. And those are the patients that I see. I've never, well, I can't say never, because I did when I was in residency, saw that patient who had a tick bite, the rash, they got treated with antibiotics, and right away. But I typically see the patients who have what we call chronic Lyme disease, whereby they may have had that condition years ago, and then years later, when the body is under stress and toxic, because we are in such a toxic environment than anything our parents, grandparents could have imagined. Those things cause inflammation. It causes our body to feel on fire. And so when our body is inflamed, those organisms can become reactivated in some patients. And I see that quite often. And that's what I saw in you. I did the digging and I found that there was some areas of inflammation that had triggered a relapse. How
0: common is Lyme disease in the United States. And do we have any idea what percentage of people who are infected with
1: Lyme don't actually know that they're infected with it? It's much more common than we would think. The CDC I'm Center for Disease Control I'm released a report not too long ago saying how Lyme disease is on the rise. And there's two different schools of thought. There's an IDSA, but the Center for Disease Control, the standard guide, what we learn in med school. Those are the powers that be. And they state that if you get treated for two weeks after a tick bite, you should be cured. You should be fine. And that chronic Lyme disease doesn't exist. And then there's my organization, which is International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society, which is a group of physicians from multiple different specialties that treat tick-borne diseases. And we understand the biology and that this organism can, in fact, reactivate in patients, and some of which who may not have even realized they had a tick bite or a rash because less than 50% of patients do. And then down the line, Start having debilitating symptoms, and sure enough, we'll do the testing, and there it is. But it's also the controversy with the test itself because the standard tests on Quest and LabCorp, the research shows that it misses about 35%. So we have terrible testing. And so a lot of patients go misdiagnosed, they go poorly treated. And we actually have a tick-borne disease task force on Capitol Hill because of this discrepancy in data. And we published, my organization, ILAD, papers last year, we published a paper on chronic Lyme disease and all the evidence that supports that. And we have actually guidelines on how to treat their peer review guidelines on how to treat a person who has chronic Lyme disease. It's underreported so often.
0: Well, what are the symptoms? You mentioned that there are people who have symptoms that go unreported. My symptoms, I did have, I wasn't like extraordinarily tired, but I would sleep eight hours a night and I would get up and I wouldn't be jumping out of bed. You know, I, I was feeling like I was dragging. I had this cough. Does it also affect the brain in terms of depression or other mental illness-related
1: symptoms? So some of the initial symptoms of tick-borne disease, I always say flu-like symptoms in the summertime. We live in Northern Virginia. This is like, I always think of it as tick-borne capital of the world. So anytime I see flu-like symptoms in the summertime or other general symptoms that are nebulous, like chronic fatigue or migrating aches and pain. And when we say chronic fatigue, we mean that debilitating fatigue. I can't get up out of bed. And throughout the day, I'm kind of dragging. But it can also cause things, as you alluded to, like cognitive impairment. It's a word we use called brain fog, where you find yourself forgetting things. You know, where I put the keys, what I did right now, I have to write lists. So someone who's usually fully functioning And all of a sudden, you have this acute onset of numerous symptoms that are nebulous. And that's The thing that I love about treating Lyme disease is that it does require some serious detective work because there are such a wide variety of clinical symptoms that patients present with. And as you alluded to, when I work at the Amen Clinic, we do spec scan imaging for our patients. And I first started collaborating with the Amen Clinics about 10 years ago when I was in private practice. And our first patient was a teenager who had treatment-resistant depression. And the brain scan had some areas, the SPECT imaging brain scan, which looks takes a picture of your brain, of inflammation. That's what we called it. It was some patterns where there were changes in blood flow and some anatomical changes that We're not consistent with just someone who had a psychiatric condition. It was, we knew, okay, there's something else going on here. And treated her, sure enough, she had negative testing by the standard testing. She had positive Lyme testing. When we looked at the bigger picture with more sensitive Lyme disease testing, treated her for the infections, her psychiatric symptoms went away. She had been on over 10 different psychiatric meds that were not working. And that's because the root cause wasn't treated or evaluated. And we actually have conferences every year in my organization, the ILADS, on just neuropsychiatric manifestations of Lyme disease. You know, I've done presentations on this topic because sometimes the primary symptom can be as simple as depression or anxiety or panic, or insomnia, or even a series of schizophrenia, or Alzheimer's dementia-like symptoms. There was actually a paper that came out a few weeks ago on Alzheimer's disease and Lyme, and how burly was found in the plaques of some of these Alzheimer's patients. So, and they don't come with joint pain. They may not even recall having a tick bite or rash. They're just having neurological symptoms that are overlooked, I have some people, oh, yeah, take a you know, antidepressant. oh, this is all in your head. And I would say, well, was really not. And that's when I start seeing those patients get better. They start getting off their meds, that they're on for mood. And it's because we're treating the problem. That's the detective work. We're treating that middle root cause.
0: Well, I am super hopeful that all of this, I mean, first of all, I should let our listeners know if they're regular listeners of Time for Coffee, they know I have shared that I have suffered from depression on and off over the years. At the moment, I feel unbelievable. I am taking some medications, but I also, thanks to Dr. Cornish and her advice and you know my own passion about this, try to eat right, which we're going to get to In just a moment, could you talk about the foundation of the functional approach, not just getting to the root causes, but how food
1: really is medicine? Would you agree with that description? Of course. Of course. I always tell patients, it's the ABCs, if you're not eating the right foods... If your gut is not working properly, because a lot of my patients suffer from chronic constipation and things of that nature, which is reflective of what's happening in their bodies. And if you're not sleeping, then you're not going to get better. You know, that's like the cornerstone. You must sleep, you must have a stable gut, and you must eat the foods that make your brain work better and make your body work better. And, and I really take time with all my patients. We discuss a nutritional strategies for them, trying to remove things that are hurtful. We might do foods and um, sensitivity tests to see what they react to that makes that body feel on fire and what they should remove to start that foundation, because that's key. And that's simple. And people don't realize that. I remember when I first had the, my triplets, when we found out we were pregnant, it was a shock. You know, they were unexpected pregnancy. And all I could think about was, what do I tell my patients? So luckily, my husband, he was already plant-based and vegetarian. He encouraged me to change my lifestyle quite a bit. And I saw a huge difference when I did that. That's not the lifestyle I tell all my patients, but you have to find what foods cause inflammation for you. And my kids are gluten-free, vegan at four years old, They don't know what candy looks like unless grandma comes over, which is rare to give them a treat or two, rare for her to cheat because she's really compliant. But I'll tell you something, when they get off the wagon, it's like World War III in my house. You know, you'll meet, oh, they're so nice and loving. Oh, they're so quiet. Let them get a bit of gluten. It's like, who's that baby snoring? I mean, we thought my daughter might have to get her tonsils out when she was eating gluten and really stuffy. When they eat sweets, it's like, why are you fighting your (laughs) stuff? They long. what is happening with their focus. And especially my pediatric patients, I always make sure I tell parents, look, if your kid is under 18, no 16, they probably don't have a job. So you can control what it is you bring into the home because you want to remove those foods that make your body and your brain unhealthy and inflamed. And it's so simple. So simple.
0: And here is a great clue for our young listeners. And Dr. Cornish, please chime in with other, other ideas of ways that they can begin to be detectives in their own body. But if you don't have energy, if it is a chore for you to focus and do whatever it is you have to do in your life, That is your cells giving you like an SOS. That means your body is not able to produce energy to give you that get up and go. As Dr. Cornish mentioned, if your bowels are not functioning properly, constipation is not normal. And neither is the opposite. (laughs) No, it's not. What else would you say would be like your body is giving you smoke signals, the fire alarm is getting pulled, that you need to look at what you're eating. And if you can, because it isn't inexpensive, it's expensive to see a functional medical doctor. And most insurance companies do not cover it.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you were excellent in your description because I live this and I use myself as an example all the time. When I went back to work after having my kids, like during my pregnancy, I was very strict being gluten free and had limited dietary options because I was so focused on having a healthy outcome. And, and we were blessed that that did occur. But I went back to work and I was like, whoa, at noon every day, I was tired. And I just said, oh, I'm a new mom. You know, first time mom, this should happen. But by my two o'clock patient, sometimes I was like, whoa, what's happening in this appointment today? Oh my gosh, I can't remember the notes. And then I did my own food inflammatory study, I actually researched one and purchased it. And my I was reacting to things that I was eating regularly because the stress, stress is what really gets us. When they say stress kills, stress affects everything. And the stress of those late nights and the sleep deprivation had made it so my gut had been what we call leaky or imbalanced. So my reactions were pear, spinach, and gluten. I was eating pear and spinach every day in a green smoothie, and that stress on my body because the gut and the brain, you guys, are connected. They're together. They're one system. They're whatever you're pouring in your in your gut, you're pouring in your brain. When you stress out the brain, you stress out the gut, and that can lead you to react to foods in a negative way. So. Besides the fatigue and the brain fog, it can be as simple as headaches after a meal or skin rashes or cough. You know, I have friends and patients, because my patients are my friends, that can be like you described, a cough or a tick or visual tics after eating. So I always ask patients, well, how often are you eating? What kind of foods are you eating? Are you tired after you eat? Are you irritable before you eat? Because those can all be different signs of certain conditions. But you have any doctor makes food your cornerstone of the healing. You have to.
0: What Dr. Cornish just said actually happened to me because she had me take I believe it's called a KMBO food mm-hmm. sensitivity test. And I found out that exact thing. The foods that I was eating regularly where I thought I'm eating my big salad every day and I'm putting hard boiled eggs and I'm putting, you know, uh, I'm trying to think some of the other, maybe some artichoke and some this and some that. It was the foods that I was eating every day that I was reacting to. So I've had to eliminate all those foods for the next, whether it's two months, three months, four months. Flaxseed was another one. That was like one of the biggest. Basil was another one. I was putting olive oil that had basil in it, thinking I was being so healthy. It was organic olive oil. But what you are eating, if you eat too much of the same things, you need to have variety in your diet. Dr. Cornish, could you also speak to the whole... There is still this mindset out there about food as being calories, mm-hmm. like You can eat a thousand calories of Doritos and that's the same as eating a thousand calories of doll. So, you know, it's calories in calories out. And some people are saying, well, I've been so good. You know, I'll just have my pizza, my pizza, Friday night pizza and my cookies. (laughs) Right? You know this, you know this, you hear this all the time. And that, you know, I'll get back on my diet in a couple Mm -hmm. of days. Why is that not the right way to think about eating?
1: You first shouldn't use that word diet because you know even with all of my patients, I try to see where their goals are. If I have a patient who comes to my practice and they eat a Dorito, Chick-fil-A, Coca-Cola diet, I'm not gonna tell them to go gluten-free overnight. I'm gonna have them start eliminating things that are toxic And see how much better they feel. And they may do it one at a time. And when you're looking at calories, you shouldn't necessarily be counting them. You know, like, oh, I'm going to get this many per day. You should look at what's the good foods because everything has some sort of calorie in it. I mean, what are the bad calories? And try to to eliminate as much as possible those things that are in that bad calorie category. And you may even find, I have a lot of patients who will tell me, because I call myself the poop queen. You know, so listeners, that might sound weird, but everyone knows I'm going to fix your gut. I'm going to get you on the right strategy diet, probiotics, I'm going to fix it and you're going to be normal and you're going to feel so much better. Because I have a lot of patients that have those calorie requirements. They're eating the bad calories and then they're saying to me, oh, I'm bloating. When I eat lettuce, I look like I'm pregnant. I'm so uncomfortable. I have like reflux. I got this burning in my throat every night. I might poop once a week. And I'm like, okay, wait, wait, wait. That means that gut is inflamed, which is going to have a negative impact on how your brain works as well. And so thinking about it as being a septic tank, whatever you put in your body, you got to get out, right? I always say that whatever you eat has to come out. Whatever toxins you ingest, have to come out. And if you don't have those regular bowel movements, or if you're looking pregnant after eating, or you're so uncomfortable, it could be some of the big picture. It could be things like dairy. You know, those are big culprits. Gluten. That's another huge, huge, huge culprit. And the most delicious thing to most people, sugar. That's another big culprit. So it's about finding a realistic lifestyle change, not necessarily a diet things that you can adhere to, but then having realistic goals to try, okay, I'm going to do one week of no pizza and junk. I'm going to do next week, no dairy and see how I feel. And once you start feeling better, you don't want to go back to those other lifestyles. And trust me, we won't.
0: Another functional medical doctor I interviewed, Dr. Mark Hyman, who you know very well, he calls it the FLC. Is that right? It's the feel like crap syndrome. (laughs) The FLC (laughs) syndrome. When you suddenly feel good, you realize, Oh my God, I have been living with this FLC syndrome, not realizing how I
1: could make myself feel better. Oh yeah. And it's, and it's so interesting. I get some patients who either love me or they get bitter when they make those lifestyle changes. And the most common thing I hear from patients, Dr. Cornish, I used to be able to eat sugar and gluten without a problem. And then you removed it. And now when I have it, I feel awful. I'm like, well, that's your body saying you didn't need it. And, no, we're all human. So I know personally, if I get cross-contamination or I have gluten, the day is over. I can't function. But was that me all my life? No. But once you start treating your body well, once you start removing some of those inflammatory foods... When you add it back, your body's not going to like it. And it's going to show that to you. And, and you know, that to always feel so funny. And I'll never forget one of my patients told me that. She's like, Dr. Cornish, I hate this. And I was like, what happened? Oh, that gluten, now my knees hurt every time I eat it. I was like, well, your knees were probably hurting all the time. And then when you removed gluten, the pain went away. <laughs> so now when you eat it, it comes back. So that's what I mean about eliminating the junk. And I agree with that FLC." You know, feel like crap. It is true. It is true. And you, your body will will tell you. (laughs) How did
0: you get interested in functional medicine?
1: So I started life wanting to be a lawyer. Okay. And then during high school, a friend of mine was like, oh gosh, if you go to this medical program in Bar Harbor, Maine, you'll get paid $300. And I'm like, wow, what do I have to say? You she's like, say you want to do research. And I was like, okay. So from that moment on, I did research at the Jackson Lab in Bar Harbor, Maine. And I fell in love. And I never looked back. You know, and this was in high school. I wasn't one of those kids. I want to be a doctor all my life. That's just how my life always works. It's like I'll find something. I'll fall in love with it. I'll stick with it. Or I might make changes to get into a better, happier place. And then I just go full into it. And the same thing kind of happened with functional medicine, because I started doing traditional medicine, family practice, in and out appointments, you know, just like a ER, you get in, you get out, and you are drug. And then I looked online and the job opportunity said for doctors that think outside of the box. And I was kind of getting bored with this hypertensive diabetes meds, metformin, lifestyle beta blocker that I had become. You know, this kind of forced area of interest every day in and out. And I said, you know what? I think I'm going to look outside the box. I think so. And sure enough, that was the first job in, in functional medicine. It's been 11 years. I haven't looked back, transitioning there. And I got introduced to Lyme disease. I got introduced to herbals. And those were things I had never heard of because herbals aren't on usually for your insurance plan. And in Lyme disease, who knew? Who knew it could reactivate? And even things like mold illness, I didn't realize how toxic it was to the brain and then how hormones play such a big part in overall healing. And then the basic things like we discussed, they don't teach that in school, the importance of your diet. They don't teach that in school, the importance of sleep hygiene. Those are just things we don't get trained in. And I'm like, why did I pay all this money for school? I could have just <laughs> learned it, <laughs> right? And that's and, that, and then that was no looking back after that. Once I went from primary care to really feeling like a healer and being able to treat the entire body, it was no looking back. And I and every day. I learned something different and something new. And it's it's just wonderful. And I think my research background helped as well, because I've always looked for the what we call hypothesis, the reason why something happened. And I just apply that to how I practice medicine, wanting to understand the why behind a clinical symptom. So let's just flashback
0: super, super quickly to when you were an undergrad. You went, as you've alluded to, to Brown University, where you graduated with honors and a double major in neuroscience and African-American studies. Did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? That's a question I ask all of my guests.
1: Well, yeah, because from, my, from high school, Brown has an eight-year med program, and I was already in med school from high school, so it was no other option. I was already there just went through the courses. But then when I started looking at, even now, health disparities in medicine, that's how I got really interested in NIH and just trying to find the underserved. And that's why I think Lyme disease is. We treat a lot of underserved patients who doctors dismiss. And that's where that kind of major led me into looking at why some people suffer and are ignored by the healthcare system. And that's across the board from all different colors and economical backgrounds. And that's something that's also very passionate to me. So that's how I kind of took my African studies to the forefront as well.
0: Speaking of African studies, what advice would you have, Dr. Cornish, for young people, especially young Black men and Black women who are interested in the functional side of medicine? From what I've observed, there doesn't appear to be very much diversity in this field. What can they expect to find in terms of the welcome mat versus proceed with caution?
1: And that's a great question. I'll just tell my experience Because being a young physician, when I first transitioned into functional medicine, I would go to some conferences and I would be the only African-American female in the room. However, I think it's important to know you have to blaze new trails. You know, in the African-American community, we suffer from so many different health disparities and at higher rates for so many conditions. I mean, look what's happening with COVID-19 among other conditions. And a lot of times it has to do with with lifestyle component right from the diet the foods you know you look on some most inner cities every other corner has a liquor store or you know fast food restaurants so when you put that all into perspective and you apply that to your family and to your community you should stay focused on that cause because i didn't understand what functional medicine or integrative medicine was at all i didn't know because they didn't take insurance. And like you said, there is a disparity between who can have the care and who can't. But I also find myself volunteering and training other doctors. I'm on the board of the Boys and Girls Club of Greater Washington, where I wanna eventually do nutritional programs for inner city kids because that's needed. That's so needed to bring it back to different communities who may not be aware because as we keep saying, medicine, and food are connected. And it's just things I didn't know growing up either.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. I try to ask all of my guests, Dr. Cornish, to share a time in their professional life when they were especially challenged. Maybe they even failed at something as I have multiple times in my career. And as most professionals have, although we don't always talk about it. And I want our young listeners to recognize that failure is often where the greatest learning, where the greatest opportunity for growth happens. So if you could share a quick story with us, but the most important part here is how you persevered. And if there was a lesson that you learned, In the process,
1: I've always been kind of an overachiever. I've always wanted to be the top of the whatever. I'm the top A person. I'm the top, you know, student since kindergarten, my mom says. And I'll never forget when I my first medical board between first and second year of med school did not go as planned. And I thought my life was over. And you know what? I pick myself up, dust myself off. And the next time, ninety fifth percentile. Because it just shows you, you have to persevere to get anywhere in life and you may have some failures. I know people who failed the bar, who failed forge, who failed, but you never get asked those questions. You just keep going and you keep pushing. And they say, what do you call the doctor with the lowest grades, with the lowest board scores, in the worst med school? MD. You call them MD. <laughs>
0: You may not want to go see that doctor, but
1: (laughs) (laughs) and it's just like, you know, those things you just have to really push yourself. And that was kind of, for me, a big turning point. I've had things in my career where, you know, I might have thought I was on the right track for a diagnosis and because I kind of am a perfectionist to a certain extent. And then you're like, oops, completely wrong. But you learn from it. It could be something simple. Oh, wait, that person had an allergy to that supplement. I didn't know that. But you learn. And you learn what makes a person feel better and you learn from your mistakes and it makes you a better doctor and a better person to be humble enough and say, hey, I fixed it and now I'm stronger because of it.
0: Love it. Love it. Final question.
1: If you could go back
0: to Brown and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself, Dr. Cornish?
1: I would say be open-minded. That's the one thing that I learned because in family practice, you do a little bit of everything in your training. You do pediatrics, you do surgery, you do OBGYN, you do internal medicine, you do psychiatry. And you you see all these different fields, but I never thought to, like I said, look outside the box and be open-minded, and just have common sense and say to myself, it's a lot easier than that person doesn't need all of these things. So I would say I would go back and say to the Ebony, you know, of undergrad, just be open minded, just try to do blaze new trails, find those answers that may not be as well accepted by others. But know that That's the art of medicine. You have to blaze new trails and you have to keep leaving your mark in medicine to be a better doctor.
0: Well, let me say that you have, oh my goodness, as I say to you at the end of every appointment, I am so grateful that you are my doctor and that you are helping me become a healthier, happier human being because, I mean, for years, I was thinking, is it in my head? Is this a tick? Little did I know by tick, I meant like a habit, (laughs) not that it was a Lyme disease reactivation that could be causing this, let alone an okra toxin. And I also had hormone imbalances that my own gynecologist never tested me for. Never Mm -hmm. asked me. You're over 50. Let's check out your progesterone and your estradiol. And Mm -hmm. never asked these questions, never ran the lab work. So thank you so much for what you do for me, for what you do for your patients and for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. This was just wonderful.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a joy.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this latest episode of T for C. we